This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, and as the war in Israel rages on, as I release this in December of 2023, I'm mixing up the content we're releasing, toggling between direct Israel-related episodes, whether those are new or in some cases throwbacks, and then also some unrelated or marginally related, tangentially related, as is the case with this particular episode, because we interview Merle Saperstein, and Merle is a wonderful, wonderful woman who has done many things in her life, among them great deal of Holocaust education, which of course is sadly feeling very relevant in our current climate. We talked about anti-Semitism, genocide, hatred of Jews, and now in its modern incarnation of Israel. And at the same time, she's also has a very, very storied career as a journaler, a real advocate for the art of journaling, and someone who has taken her own journals, over 380 of them, excerpted them and published them in a really, really beautiful manner. And with everything that people are going through today, with all the difficulties, all the stress, all the pain, I do feel like journaling can be an incredibly useful tool, a way to help people process what's going on, a way to really leave a legacy to those coming after them, which is so much a part of Merle's own work. So I hope you will give this episode a real listen and more than that, give her suggestions a real try. We'll link in the show notes. You take a look at where you can find her work, where you can learn more about all the different things that she is referencing. Meanwhile, a reminder to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter or now X. Please follow or subscribe wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, etc. And please refer the show to family and friends so that they can enjoy the program as well. And now to our conversation with Holocaust educator, author, and journaling expert, Merle Saferstein. We are here with Merle Saferstein, a longtime author, educator, Holocaust expert, and uh, so much more. How are you, Merle? I'm great, and I'm happy to be here today. Wonderful to have you. And uh, as we we talked a little bit before we started recording, that you are down in sunny Miami, or I don't know if it's sunny Miami right now or Hurricane Miami, but uh, with all the uh, the season is is going on, a lot of a lot of trepidation about that. But um, normally sunny Miami, at least. Um, but at the same time, you said you're not from there, so tell us a little bit about where you are from uh, originally, where you where you grew up. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and lived there for, I guess, for about 28 years. And then my husband, um, who is my high school sweetheart, um, and I moved to um, South Florida. He was a podiatrist. He graduated and and, um, decided that we wanted to live where the sun was shining. And um, most of the time it is. However, this morning on on my walk, I got rained out totally. But no, but usually it's it's really beautiful here. We love it. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that early upbringing uh, back in Cleveland, the uh, 
lovely Midwestern town. What exactly was your upbringing like? Where was your were your family, were your parents immigrants? Like, where did they come from? How long had your family been in Cleveland? Sure. My parents were not immigrants. Um, they were first generation Americans. And um, we, we lived actually in a house where my aunt and uncle and three cousins lived downstairs. My, we lived on the second floor and my grandparents lived on the third floor. My grandfather was Orthodox. Um, we used to actually, he used to go to shul on Saturdays and we would have to come get him at the end because he wouldn't eat breakfast. He'd have a few glasses of schnapps and he couldn't necessarily <laughs> always find his way home. Uh. My, mom, my mother was a Hebrew school teacher. She taught for 40 years and um, we were conservative. So we, we were raised that way. And it, Judaism was really an important part of, of my life growing up because of my mother and my grandfather. I remember as a little girl going um, to my grandfather would come downstairs um, every morning to like fill in and I would hide behind the couch and watch him. I was fascinated with the whole thing. Um, so it was a it was a wonderful way to be raised, to live with family in the way that we were. So my, my three cousins really became like siblings to me as well. And um, I'm so grateful for that because when we moved to Florida, we literally had no family except for one of my mom's first cousins, who was a much older couple. They could have been our grandparents. And so and I realized... Which part of Cleveland was it, by the way, back then? Was it... Because uh, nowadays, the, the community is in University Heights, Cleveland Heights, Beachwood. Where were you? We were Cleveland Heights. We lived in Cleveland Heights. My husband, um, who I went to school with and was actually my high school sweetheart, was from University Heights. So we went to the same school. We are going back next week for our 60th year high school reunion. Oh, my. Unbelievable. It that is, is something special. Yeah. That's and incredible. then to share the history with him in the way that we have is pretty incredible. How did you guys meet in, in high school? What was the what was the story? So we were in our when we were 15 in our sophomore year, we met just because his group of friends and my group of friends were the friends that were active in our class. In our senior year, we had a homecoming float deal. Everyone did a homecoming float. And um, our class was going to do one. And Daryl's father, my husband's father, was in the furniture business. And he had this big green truck that he used to deliver furniture in. And we needed to get boxes for the float, you know, some of the big furniture boxes. And so I volunteered to call him because I actually wanted a date for homecoming. So I was really very conniving, called him started talking to him and then he began to work on the float with us. And within a few days, he asked me to homecoming and that's the end of it. We both went to Ohio state together, graduated the Ohio state. There we go. The, the Ohio state university <laughs> that's where our granddaughter is now going. Oh, that's great. That's great. When she called to tell us that she got accepted, she, they're from Minnesota. She called up and my husband and I said, we'll call you right back. We went in our bedroom. We got Ohio State t-shirts on. We called her back, sang the fight song and said, okay. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a great story. Uh, how's she doing over there? Does she like it? She's great. She's graduating. She's in her senior year. Last year, we went to see her. And um, I've, I've been keeping journals for many, many years and had written to them because someone told me that often university archives are interested in people's journals. 
And the archivist there said, unfortunately not, unless I wrote them while I was at Ohio State, which I hadn't. But I had all my calendars that filled in all the dates. So I had all of those. And the archivist said, we really want those. We don't have any from 63, 64, 65, 66. And so when I was there, I went to the Ohio Ohio State University archives and donated the um, dates and data is what they were called. It was pretty exciting to do that. Wow. They've been, uh, they had a pretty exciting game uh, last week. They've been uh, struggling against Michigan though in in the last couple of years. So uh, I'm well aware, (laughs) believe me. Do you, do you, do you and your husband ever get back there other than visiting your granddaughter? We, we go to Ohio. We go to Cleveland to visit family. We still have a lot of family and friends there. So yes, we do go back often. Fantastic. Now, once you were uh, in Ohio state, did you guys have a clear sense of what you wanted to do? It sounds your husband went to podiatry. Um, What was your, uh, what was your what was your path over there? Well, he he wanted some kind of medicine. He really wanted to be a vet, but he unfortunately didn't study hard enough. I kept saying, you know, it's gonna. He was busy do- with you, Merle. Come on. Yeah, really. Um, I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. I am sure that that comes from having watched my mother teach, and and I also believe that once an educator, always an educator. And I don't think that it's something you can be taught. I think it's either you are or you're not. Um, so I knew I wanted to be an educator and um, went into elementary education, and that's wow. how I began. And what grades did you uh, did you teach? I taught third grade and first grade in Ohio. I taught for four and a half years, and then we had our child, our daughter, and we then moved to Florida, where my husband um, did his internship. No, he did his internship in Cleveland, and when he finished, we moved to Florida. Um, and then I didn't teach for. We had our daughter, and then a year and a half later, we had our son. And then when he was three and was going to nursery school, I went back and started teaching in nursery school. So that's then how I started my my next career. So nursery was the, really uh, what you went into afterwards? Yeah, preschool. And then I ended up directing a preschool for a few years at a synagogue and also directed a um, a camp with 350 kids and 75 counselors at our synagogue. So I did Amazing. that for five years. Down in Florida. In Florida, yeah. That's wonderful. So at some point you started getting interested, I guess, in Holocaust education. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, it, it, it's not actually the way it happened. Um, so what happened was after I left a job, I had a job at a high school for a while, and I left it because I just was not happy with what, what was going on in the administration. And I was basically lost. I was 38. I was wandering the beach, going through an existential crisis, trying to figure out who I am, what I am, what I'm going to do with my life. And every morning I would um, jog along the shore. And at the same time, there was a man jogging in the opposite direction. We would wave to each other. And then eventually we would both end up sitting very close to each other. And he was doing the same thing I was doing. He was writing, he was reading. And at one point he stopped and talked to me. And so his name was Tom. And Tom had actually grown up in Richfield, Ohio, which is just a half hour from where I live, where I grew up, which is pretty crazy. He had just left the priesthood. He had been in the priesthood for eight years. And he was trying to figure out what he was going to do. But he also was very spiritual. And he had studied Carl Jung and had a a very different um, sense of things that I knew nothing about, but that I was really in search of. 
And so Tom and I began a conversation. He moved um, first to Washington, D.C., where he began to work for the National Council of Churches. And then he left and went to New York. And he was doing temp work and ended up working for someone who was the um, who had put on the play. It was actually an operetta on the Diary of Anne Frank in off, off Broadway. The same man was the director, was the no, he was the president of the Anne Frank Center in New York. At the same time, someone had found Anne Frank's family photo album in a chest of drawers in Germany and had sent it, recognized Anne Frank, and had sent it to the Amsterdam Anne Frank Center. They created this exhibition called Anne Frank of the World, 1929 to 1945, which was 800 photographs, photographs of the Holocaust, um, but with Anne Frank's family in the center. So it starts with the family and then then just kind of branched out. Tom's job, they asked Tom to become the executive director. He started working there. His job was to take the um, the exhibit around the country. So, he, you know, he knew I was a journal, a journal writer. He knew that Anne Frank spoke to my soul. He also knew I needed a job, however, when he called me to ask me if I would bring it to Miami, it was a volunteer job. And at that point, it was two and a half years since I had worked and I really needed to be working. But my husband said, no, you have to do this. And so um, <clears throat> I brought the exhibit to Miami. It was the pilot city, the first time it had been in the United States, <clears throat> except for a week in New York when they had Ellie Wiesel and Dr. Ruth and several other survivors who came to the event, which was pretty exciting. And so my goal was to have 50,000 people. We had it at the new library downtown and to have a, a, uh, an editorial in the Miami Herald. And we ended up having way more than 60,000 people and the editorial in the Herald. And it was a very exciting time. Meanwhile, I'll just say that my mother was only afraid the town was trying to convert me. That was her. She she kept thinking, you know, here you are. You're with this Catholic man. What's going on? And in fact, he's the one who led me to Holocaust education. And how that happened was I was doing all kinds of student programming. And at one of the programs I did, I had students at the library and I invited two women from the Holocaust Center in Miami to come and speak to the students. And when they saw the program that I had created, they, after the exhibit, called me and asked me if I would come to the center and have help them to create some programming for students because they had only done adult programming. And so that's really how I got to Holocaust education. What kind of programs had you created that were attractive to them? So one of the programs we did was I had, well, first of all, I had a lot of student classes come. So I spoke to about a hundred different classes, but one of the programs that we did was I took I invited two students from every high school. So Miami had at the time 50 high schools. So there were 100 students plus one of the, the high schools, North Miami Beach Senior High School, the month before had done the Diary of Anne Frank as a play. And I had gotten in touch with the director and brought a survivor, Jerry Goldsmith, who was a psychologist who had been in hiding down the street from Anne Frank. And I had him speak to the cast and the crew of the play. So here's this Holocaust survivor talking to these high school students. 
and talking to them about his experience. But what I had the kids do was talk out of their character. So, for example, Otto Frank would say, so we're having a lot of fighting going on. What was going on in your, you know, in your attic? How did you survive? What did you eat? What did you do? And it was a very powerful program for the kids. So I invited all 25 of them. So the cast and the crew came. Everybody only had name tags with their first name, no identification of school. So nobody knew where anyone was from. And during that day in the morning, um, I did some journaling with them. I had these two women speak. I talked about Anne Frank and we, you know, we had some programming. And then right before we went down to lunch, Peter stood up, Peter from the play, stood up and started speaking a line from the play. And then within the next 25 minutes, the cast got up and did an act of the play, just sitting there. And it was it was just mind-boggling because no one had any idea that was happening. So that was one of the one of the programs we did. And then we went downstairs and they saw the exhibit and then came back up and we talked about it. And then they went home. But these women were really pretty excited about that. And so that's one of the programs that, that I did. How did that all lead into more of a career of teaching about the Holocaust? Okay. So then um, I started just as a volunteer. And about two months after I started, the secretary quit. And they called me and they said, would you be willing to be the secretary? And I said, I will do that for three months. But if I'm not in education, then I really need to get a job and do what I need to do. At the same time, what ended up happening was that they had hired someone with her PhD in Holocaust studies from California. And she had not yet started. So I was doing just basically programming, not not necessarily anything specific, but working on developing what we called student awareness days. In the meantime, um, this woman came, and unfortunately, while she was brilliant, she was a, not a good administrator. And my boss kept giving me all the administrative jobs, and it was very awkward. And eventually they ended up firing her. At the same time, the president of the university, of the um, center was also a president of one of the universities in South Florida. And he took me to breakfast and we spent three hours and he grilled me. And at the end of three hours, he said, okay, you can do this. And so then I became the director of educational outreach at the Holocaust Center and stayed there for 26 years. Incredible. Um, so what were kind of the, the roles and duties in, in that particular job? Was it mostly with kids or it sounds like probably more adults at that center? Um, what kind of programming, what kind of research and, and so forth did you embark on? One of the things that um, that I had the great privilege of doing is working with about 500 Holocaust survivors over my time at the center. So that alone was huge. My job was strictly student programming. I did do, and we did do some adult programming, but for the most part, we did student programming. So we had several things. One thing we did was an annual writing and visual arts contest where we had hundreds of students who entered every year. And um, part of who judged it were some of the Holocaust survivors. We also had um, a speakers bureau where we sent survivors to speak to about 18,000 people a year. 
mostly students. But when, you know, when I started calculating the numbers, it was unbelievable. Um, we did a teacher institute where every year, every June, we had an institute for teachers K through college. So we had, in 1994, we had worked very hard to get Holocaust education mandated in the state of Florida. And so one of our jobs was to help teach teachers how to teach the Holocaust properly. We also oversaw the creation of four uh, resource manuals for teachers. So K through three, which was character education, four through six, which was social responsibility, seven and eight, the beginning of teaching about the Holocaust, and then nine through 12 was, you know, the real heavy duty stuff. And our last manual for nine through 12 was 941 pages. I oversaw the entire creation, the standardization, the proofing, the getting the, all the copyright. I mean, it was a huge job. So we did that and we worked, we helped develop a task force for the state of Florida. So there was a, hog, a commissioner's um, task force on Holocaust education within the state. Unfortunately, I have to say that a lot of what we did, we worked on the state standards to make sure the Holocaust was being covered correctly. A lot of that now with our new governor has changed. I mean, it's Holocaust education is not being taught the same way that it was then. At least, at least that's what it looks like. Um, anyway, so at our teacher institutes, it was a five-day workshop. I always started each Monday morning with talking about journaling and teaching the, the teachers the importance of journaling so that they not only journaled for themselves as they taught the class, but they modeled for their students and had their students journal because it's such an emotional topic and they, they you need some kind of outlet when you're learning this. Also at the Institute, we had a survivor sitting at every table. So the teachers had the opportunity to, to sit with five different Holocaust survivors throughout the week. It was very powerful. And we gave them a lot of time to talk to each one of them and ask questions. So the teacher institutes were um, important, an important piece of what we did, and certainly made a difference in terms of the numbers of students who were going to learn about the Holocaust. And then the, the really the premier project that we did was our student awareness days. And these were programs we did 10 to 12 a year with the three counties in South Florida, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County. And we had programs for high school students and college students, anywhere from 250 to 800 students at a program. And at each program, there were 10 students sitting at a table with a Holocaust survivor and a facilitator. And we would start by talking about the antecedents to the Holocaust. We showed a video that was a black and white video with excerpts from children's diaries and um, letters written during the Holocaust with, with scenes from pre-war, during the war and post-war. <clears throat> and then we would have a survivor stand up and speak. And almost always we had a survivor who was in the camp because people seem to be, you know, that seems to be the draw, the most interesting piece for them for whatever reason. But at the tables were survivors who were children who had been in hiding, partisans in camps, you know, all kinds of different experiences. So the students had the opportunity to hear from two, two different experiences that day. And at that time, 
we we encourage the students to ask questions rather than the survivor to just tell his or her story, but to really let the students ask whatever they needed to find out or, or wanted to know. And then in the afternoon after lunch, we would switch the focus and we'd have someone talk about prejudice. And then we would say to the students, okay, so these survivors were just like you. They had hopes and dreams. They, you know, what they wanted and what they expected in life was very different than what happened because of prejudice. And so what's happening in your life in terms of prejudice? And because we're in Miami and we're so multicultural, there were all kinds of situations. And the students were very open. We always made sure that no student sat with anyone from his class, which was pretty pretty really um, for them. Many of them were not happy about that, but we knew that they were going to have a much different experience if they weren't sitting next to their best friend. And the programs were very powerful um, and pretty incredible to walk into a room and see, you know, 85 survivors with uh, 850 students talking. Um, It was it was incredible. At one point, Steven Spielberg gave us a grant. So we did three college student awareness days, college and university student awareness days a year for three years. And that that too was really wonderful. And we continued then to, to work on college campuses as well, because we felt that was really important. Another thing our center did, there were four boys who had desecrated a synagogue in Miami. And the judge had them come to our center for an educational program. So we had 18 hours with these students. We first met with the parents, and that was really pretty disheartening because it was very obvious to us why these boys were the way they were. Um, Not all of them, but one, especially one in particular. Um, We, our founding president of the Holocaust Center was a non, so we were a non-sectarian, non-denominational center because we felt that while it is a Jewish experience, it's it's a humanitarian experience. And so that was our focus. So we had Sister Trinita Flood as one of the people working with these students. We had um, one of the college presidents. We had a rabbi. We had a Holocaust survivor and a few of us who are educators and um, worked with the kids. And it was really challenging because they gave us the answers we wanted to hear, but not sincerely. And in all of that, you know, we we felt at the end that we probably changed two lives, but but most likely one for sure was not going to change. I mean, his his beliefs were hardcore. So those were some of the programs we did. By the end of the last grant I wrote before I left the Holocaust Center, um, we had to name um, num figure out the amount of students we had touched since we started student programming. And the way we figured it, it was very close to 1 million students in the 26 years I was there. So that alone, you know, if I always say, if I've touched one life, I've made a difference. Um, Having the privilege, the great privilege and, and honor to work with these Holocaust survivors and to help students learn from the primary source was really such a gift for me to be able to do. And one of the saddest things is that, you know, the survivors are really rapidly dwindling in number. Um, sure. At this point, we're talking about, you know, I don't know how many left, but not nearly what there was. And uh, the primary sources, like, as you, you know, as you note, are disappearing. Um, right. And that's really, 
concerning, you know. It's very um, concerning. Yeah. I'm still I'm still close with several survivors who fortunately are still alive and well. One is a 98-year-old woman who is a fabric artist um in her day and now at this age is creating a new piece of art every two weeks at least. Every two weeks on Facebook, she's got something else coming out. It is amazing, amazing, amazing. And there are a lot of the child survivors are still living. And, um, you know, unfortunately, they're aging, but they are still continuing. And what's happening in Miami is our federation is now training third generation to speak. And very often, the survivors would talk to their grandchildren rather than their children because it was easier to not inflict the pain on their kids. And so this is, I think, going to be very powerful because we found that the second generation did not step up in the way that we hoped they would. Um, but the third generation surely is. Wonderful. So what have you learned about Holocaust education over the last, you know, these decades that you've been involved? Um, what are what are some of the challenges? I'm, I imagine that you you know, have liaised with colleagues around the country, perhaps in the Washington, D.C. center and, you know, all the other, uh, you know, places that are engaged in this. What have you learned? What are some of the sort of the pitfalls, shortcomings in, in Holocaust education? And, you know, what what is kind of the best practices that you determined over the, over the course of your experience? Well, I think the greatest pitfall is the people who are the teachers who aren't interested in teaching it. So while, while we had Holocaust education mandated, we certainly had the resources. There were counties in Florida where they might have had a Holocaust um, liaison for the schools, but we got almost nothing back. And that was really very frustrating. Um, so I think that that's an issue. Of course, in, in Florida now with cancel culture, there's a lot that's not being taught. I don't know what's happening. I've kind of lost touch of that around the country. But we were one of the forefront um, runners in, in terms of making sure that Holocaust education was taught. I um, I like to think that this is going to go on. I know that Steven Spielberg Shoah has, has, is now doing holograms with Holocaust survivors and so that's a way that uh, students can come and sit. I mean, it's it's a little creepy to me because the survivors aren't necessarily even living anymore. But the students can ask. I think they've programmed, you know, they, they did something like 40 hours of questioning with the survivors and recorded it. So they can answer something like a thousand different questions, which is pretty incredible. So that's really happening in a way that has had not happened before. And then, of course, with the internet, um, things have changed because when we first started, there was no internet. And now there's access to so much more information, videos, things like that. But to me, the greatest pitfall is the fact that there won't be the survivors to tell their stories. And our Holocaust Center started by um, taking testimony. So I know that they had, when I left, there were about 25 hundred testimonies and Spielberg's done 55,000 I think around the world. So so they are there and they are available and accessible to people to learn from. And I think that that's, you know, that's really a huge gift that we we will be left with. Beautiful. You mentioned the idea of journaling. Um it sounds like that was really a prominent part of your personal journey. Uh talk about that a little bit. When did that start? Where did that 
come from okay. and so forth? Sure. I started journaling in um, 1974. I was 30. So we had moved to Florida about a year and a half before that. And um, I had two small children. I was pretty much stuck at home. Um, I, I, I knew that I wanted to be a mother and I loved my children and I was happy, but I was a little frustrated because I, I felt like I didn't have many friends. We had just moved here. I was alone. And so one day I just picked up my journal and started writing. And mostly in those days, I wrote about what was going on around me, you know, what my life was day to day. I did record a lot about my children and my husband and my relationship. And so for the, probably the next seven years, I journaled and probably filled about 11 journals, I'd say, in seven years. And then in 82, my closest friend, who was really my playmate when our kids were busy playing, um, got divorced, and she was out and about and no longer was available. Football season started. My husband was also not available. And so I started going to the beach on the weekends and writing and journaling daily. And that's when it really began. So 82 is when I began seriously journaling. Um, I currently have about 380 some journals. I have been writing on a pretty daily basis. There were times in my life where I was journaling at the railroad tracks when I was stopped or in line at the grocery store waiting. I always, always, always carried a journal with me. And um, I typically write in the morning, although last night I woke up at 2.30 in the morning. If I wake up and I let my mind start going at all, it's dangerous. And so after 10 minutes, I said, that's it. And I got up and I wrote for an hour and then went back to sleep. So journaling is something that has been really important to me. It's been something that was pretty you know, I, I kept it to myself. Uh, people, everyone in my life knew, of course, that I journaled, but it wasn't something that I shared a lot or I occasionally would do workshops for people. And of, of course, at the teacher institutes. But in 2017, someone contacted me from the International Association for Journal Writing, um, which is um, an organization for people who are interested in journaling. And I was asked to be on their council. And suddenly, what had been a very private uh, matter became something where I was much more out there talking about journaling. And so now um, during COVID, right at the beginning of COVID, the rabbi, um, from one of the rabbis in Federation called me and asked me if I would do a journaling circle for people just because everyone was stuck at home. So in April of 2020, I started a Sunday morning journaling circle and this past Sunday was our 157th time we've been together. And I mean, it started out, there were 20 some people, and now there are 15 who show up. And six of them are therapists of different sorts. The conversation is deep and heavy. The writing is um, really important and meaningful for all of us. And so journaling um, was something that was just so much a part of my life. One interview a while ago, someone, the interviewer asked me um, what my life would be like without journaling. And I stopped and said, I've been asked a lot of questions. I've always been able to answer them. I cannot answer this question because I can't even conceive of my life without journaling. Wow. How'd you get the idea to even journal? Like where did that, where did that come from? What was the, 
impetus? So I had kept diaries as a as a child, as a teenager, young teen, and um, I always liked writing. When I was nine years old, a lot, my mom came from a very big family, and I used to write to my aunts and uncles and my cousins all over the country. And I remember telling myself at nine years old that I need to lead an interesting life so I have something to write about. Not the other way around, huh? (laughs) I know, really crazy. Um, And so I think I've always enjoyed writing. I never considered myself a writer, and it took me a long time to be able to say I am a writer and to say that out loud. But I, I... the act of writing is really something that's very important to me. I, I feel that I am an educator first and a writer second. And you know, I guess what do you what do you gain from journaling? What what's the what's the power of the art form that you're you know experiencing? Journaling is one of the best self care tools. It is a way to process whatever's going on in one's life. So, for example, if if I've got a situation, a problem, something, I'm dealing with someone or something, and I need to work through it, I will write about it in my journal. And then sometimes I will write an unsent letter in my journal, you know, writing directly to the person, saying everything I need to say, and sometimes maybe multiple letters until I get to the point where I can take away the emotion and just come to what is the crux of the issue that we need to discuss. So that's a really great tool. Another thing that I've done is do dialogue writing. So I write from myself and from the other person and have a conversation with that person, which sounds probably crazy to some because how can I know what the other person is going to say? But inevitably, what comes down is that person's voice. And it doesn't even matter because I say what needs to be said, and then I know how to handle the situation. So I think that it's it's a great cathartic tool. It's a really wonderful therapeutic tool. It is um, a way to know myself. In 1986, I went to therapy for a very short time. There was an issue that I really wanted to tackle, and I felt like I needed someone that was um, could, could just really help me and guide me. At the end of the eight sessions, she said to me, I've never known anyone who knows herself as well as you do. And I know that that's because I keep keep a journal. You know, I, I, I really know myself. I have a very examined life. And as a result of that, um, I just feel that my journaling has been the give, greatest gift I've ever given myself. Is, is journaling something that you feel anyone could benefit from? Or, you know, do you have to kind of be a certain of a certain mind to be a journaler? No, I don't think one has to be of a certain mind. I think that, I mean, there have been so many people in my life, you know, within the last several years who've never journaled before, who resisted it, who were willing to try it for a little while, whose lives, I mean, they've told me their lives have changed as a result of that. And I'm talking men and I'm talking women. So I don't think that there's, there's no age limit. People will say to me, you're so lucky you started. I wish I had. I say, you know, all we have is right now. So start right now. People say, I don't know where to start. I'll say, start with right now. I'm thinking or right now I'm feeling and just write, you know, even set a timer for 10 minutes and say for 10 minutes, I'm just going to write down whatever comes to mind. And then the next week, maybe for 15 minutes or 20 minutes. Um, it's, 
it, it's a stress reducer. It's a wonderful way to to stay healthy, I think. You know, there was a period in my life where um, we had a really difficult situation, and I did the following. I wrote a lot. I talked, I talked a lot, and I exercised. And my husband did none of those things and got really sick. And I realized that it those are the tools, you know, to be able to just get it out, to not keep it inside, to put it down on paper, to say something to someone is such a valuable gift that we give ourselves. I mean, do you ever feel like journaling could be like an avoidance mechanism? Um, because rather than, let's say, have the actual difficult conversation with somebody, you know, um, just writing it to yourself and then not really having those important conversations. No, I don't think it's an avoidance um, mechanism. For me, it's a jumping point. It's, okay, I have to have this conversation. What is it exactly that I need to say? So I don't I don't ever feel like I'm avoiding. I feel like I'm really examining it so that I know where I need to go and what I need to do. Have you ever thought about journaling almost as, as a spiritual exercise, like connecting to God in some way, like, you know, almost a prayerful uh, exercise uh, or, is, or is it really more inwardly focused? I think there have been, been situations where I have probably on some level prayed that, you know, for something in my journals, but I, you know, I, I think I want to tell you a story about that because it, it doesn't involve me, but it involves someone that I worked with. Um, I teach this legacy class, and one of the classes was at a, a cancer institute, and one of the women in the class was 40 at the time, and she had a two-year-old daughter. She had, um, when she was pregnant, she had a lump in her breast, and the doctor kept saying, no, it's just pregnancy, not to worry. By the time she delivered, and then three months later, she had back pain. It turned out that she had breast cancer that had metastasized to her spine. So I met her when she was in heavy-duty treatment. And I encouraged her to journal, and I encouraged her to do a video for her daughter, all with the hopes that she was going to live. But unfortunately, she didn't. So she died three years later. And she was keeping journals for the whole time. Two weeks before, three weeks before she died, her brother called me and said, Sarah has asked me to call you and ask if you would um, take her journals and read them and take out excerpts that someday can be for her daughter. <laughs> of course, I said yes. I think it was probably one of the most sacred things that I've ever done. And I've done some, you know, in all the hospice work I've done, I've done some pretty amazing things. But this one was just beyond anything I could have ever imagined. Sarah wrote those journals for herself without question. So she was a Catholic. And um, her journals came to me in a box. And I, I looked at them, the box for a week before I could even open it, because I knew I was going to embark on something that was really sacred. And I started reading them. And what I found in those journals was that Sarah wrote to God all the time. It was so, I mean, just talking about it brings tears to my eyes. It was so powerful to see how she connected and felt 
the the desire, the strong desire to ask God to help her. And um, going through the journals, it was so obvious that she never expected anyone to read them. I mean, I think at the end she realized that she had things she wanted her daughter to know um, and fortunately trusted me to be able to do that. But so when you say that, I think there, you know, obviously there are people who are that um, such strong believers and who would write to God in their journals. Who would you imagine one day, if anyone, would read these journals, or is it really just for you? Um, and if it is for others, potentially, like this woman, for example, with her daughter, are you concerned about you know people reading like your innermost private thoughts and maybe your struggles, maybe your failings? Um, you know, you talked about your granddaughter earlier at Ohio State, like. How would you feel one day if she's, you know, leafing through and just reading, reading these things and, you know, sees intimate details and that kind of thing? How do you, how do you kind of navigate that? Okay. So first of all, when my granddaughters were born on the day each of them was born, I started a journal for them. So the one at Ohio State is already finished and I'm already in the second journal for her. And the other one who's a senior in high school is getting close to, to being done. So they've got their own journals where I share how I feel, uh, very loving. You know, every time I'm with them, I write something in the journal. So it's it's just going to be something that they'll treasure. In two th- the I always thought that I would leave my journals to my children, you know, without really thinking carefully about what that meant until the year 2000. And in 2000, I started going back and forth and realizing that, in fact, I've written these journals for myself. And there's so much in there that's for my eyes only. Also, people have have um, confided in me through the years. And sometimes some of the things they tell me, I need to process in some way, and I will write in my journal. And there is no way I would ever want my children or anyone to see that. I mean, that's, you know, that's a confidence that I, I hold dear to my heart. And so... In the year 2002, I embarked on a project, and I decided that I was going to go through my journals. I've always wondered whether I have anything in there to share. And I kept thinking, you know, as an educator, I I can't have filled 380 journals without having something. I mean, it's just, there's got to be something. And so I decided that I was going to start reading my journals and taking excerpts and figuring it out. And then those excerpts would be what I would leave to my children. In my will, it's already that my journals are to be destroyed. I have tried to to send them to an ar- to our different archives. It's not worked yet. Um, for now, for safety, for my own peace of mind, my family knows that's what's going to happen. I would like to live long enough so that I can read them again and so that I can experience my life one more time in that way. I have a friend who's an artist who is dying to do some kind of project with my journals. And so we're really talking, we're in conversation about that as well. Did you have them like locked away somewhere where nobody? Yes. They are in a fireproof safe that takes up half of one closet. It was my daughter's closet when she (laughs) left and moved to Atlanta. I said, are you sure you're not coming back there? It's a huge, it weighs 750 pounds or 700 pounds. When it came, because it's fireproof, it took three men to bring it in. God only knows if we ever move what I will do with it. But uh, as it turns out, I did it because we had had a fire in our house in Cleveland before we moved. And I just 
because my journals are such a treasure, it's not even about that someone reading it. It's for that reason. At any rate, I decided to go through. And so I started out with about 40 topics. At the time, I think I had about 340 journals. And I started going through them and taking excerpts according to topics. It took me 14 years to read 359 journals. I stopped in 2016. I had 70 topics, paid anywhere from 75 to 450 unlined typewritten pages on each topic. And then it was a matter of, okay, what do I share? And so then I started just deleting topics, you know, all that work. And then I'm just deleting them from my computer. It was kind of crazy. but and did You didn't it. have any of these digitized, right? These were all. All handwritten. So Every you page. had to type though, you would type up those excerpts and right. then start kind of sifting right. them out. Right. So what I would do is I would label them as I would read. I'd label the topic. When I finished reading a journal, I would sit down at the computer and I would go through and put the excerpt in the topic and the computer. So I had folders for each topic. It was tedious. It, 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 yeah, it was very tedious. It was, there must, it be, was really must be scanners that can kind of read your handwriting and turn it into digitized text. Maybe, but I don't know. <laughs> I haven't found one. <laughs> At any rate, it was, it was really a, a good experience for me to do that. Um, so it took five years to whittle that down and decide which which topics I wanted to include and which excerpts I wanted to include. Originally, I will say that I basically, um, I, I think that I basically said the, the better, the more positive things and left out some of the heavy duty things in which I would be vulnerable. But I have a friend who's a psychologist who kept drilling into my head that what I really need to do is talk about the shadow side, that people are going to relate, if they're going to relate. And I had decided at some point that this was beyond for my children. It was that I was going to put these books out there. And so I went back in the first chapter that I decided to change and add the heavy stuff was on marriage. And so when I had read the, you know, read what I first said it was really lovely and anyone would say, oh, <laughs> terrific. but anyone who's been married knows that it is not all fluff and so i started pulling excerpts out that were really heavy duty the truth is that this book i have um i've made myself very vulnerable because i am sharing really some some very deep and heavy feelings and thoughts but i wrote the book and put it out there for two reasons. One, because I want to encourage people to journal. And two, because I want them to look at my life, not because it's my life, but to look at my life as a mirror into their own. To be able to say, this is part of the human condition. You know, I she does this and I do this. She thinks this and I think this. And so really to help people understand their lives in a way that they might not necessarily. And that's really the response that I'm getting. Did you have to, you know, uh, secure your husband's permission, you know, because you're obviously these are impacting on him tremendously or other people just in general, as you're disclosing things, I'm sure other people are implicated in different ways. You know, oh, I got mad at my, you know, neighbor, but, you know, or my, my, my daughter was ticking me off, you know, whatever. And, you know, maybe they don't want that out there. So how did that, how does that process work? 
when when it was something really personal, but it was a story that I wanted to tell, I changed the name and sometimes changed the gender. So so I did that. Um can't do that with your husband, husband though. <laughs> no, what what I did with my husband was I read him every single chapter. He was the first person who heard them. And he I I actually have to say that I was shocked at how he never said, I don't want you to put that. The only thing he said to me questioning was, did you write anywhere about my open heart surgery in 1999? I'm like, no, that wasn't, I I mean, maybe not for this chapter, not for that chapter, maybe it'll be there somewhere, but that was not, you know, whatever. But otherwise he gave me full permission. What I did on um, for the chapter on parenting was I, sent the chapter to both my children before anyone else saw it. And I said, tell me if there's anything in here that doesn't work for you. And both of them were 100% fine, but my daughter called me. So my daughter had been sexually abused when she was 10 and 11 years oh, old yeah, over, over a long period of time. Oh, yeah. we, we did not know till she was 18. So she said, Rebecca said to me, you know, mom, um, is there any place in this book that you've written about that? And I said, no, I don't, you know, I don't feel that's my story to tell, you know, and I don't want to say that. And she said, no, I really think you have to. And I said, wow. why? And she said, because people hear about it from the person who's been abused, but they don't hear about it from the parents. And I think your perspective would be really helpful. So I went back to that journal where she told us, and I took excerpts, I put them in the chapter. I also, at the end of every chapter in the book, I have journal prompts that people can write on, and then I do a reflection on what it was like for me to read these excerpts and what I'm thinking now all these years later. Mm. In the reflections, I wrote why I've included that in, in terms of why I put that piece about Rebecca, because I don't want people to think that I glibly right. wrote child sexual abuse. I called her, I read her, everything I added, and she said, this is great. I'm glad you did this. That's beautiful. But then another, in the second volume, one of the most important chapters is a chapter that I wrote. I have 48 vignettes of Holocaust stories. And that piece was really important to me, but also I had to be careful with the names. And so unless I got permission from the people to to include those, I ended up just using an initial and not identifying as closely as I had originally. But there was a whole big thing. And I became concerned. So I spoke with the president of the National Memoir Association. I talked to um, a Holocaust survivor. I talked to an attorney, an IP attorney, and Michael Birnbaum, who is the noted Holocaust historian. Everyone said, it's okay. Um, you should really, you should not use their names unless they give you permission. Mike, and so I decided to change everything. And then I got a letter from Michael because he was is a friend of mine. And he said, there's absolutely no reason. These people have spoken publicly. You can use their names. And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Michael, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to take care of it. But that chapter is very heavy. And some of the people have told me that they couldn't even read it. And it's, I mean, it's pretty brutal, but it's so important because it really tells the stories. And what, that's what actually happened. It was it was horribly brutal. That's, you know, exactly. reality. Exactly. You know, it's funny. I recently, totally coincidentally, I was looking through some old documents of mine 
tried digging digging around in these folders for like uh, looking for something like a I needed to you know produce a document for something, and I came across some journals that I had written uh, during a uh, couple my early my late teens early twenties like eighteen nineteen maybe to twenty I'd written I, I spent a couple of years studying in Israel after high school and I had written journals about you know while I was there pretty extensive um, and I had not read them in forever you know in years uh, um, and I started reading them flipping through them. And it was, it was a kind of a trippy experience, you know, part of it was like, oh, that was, you know, really sweet and really interesting, really nice. Part of it was like a little, as, as they would say nowadays, a little cringy, you know, a little cringe, a little mm-hmm. bit like, oh, you know, like, uh, did I really write that? Was, was, was I really thinking that way at 19, 18, you know, did, did I really say that was so, you know, sappy or whatever it might've been? What's the experience for you? Like kind of going back and you're, you know, going back probably many more years having writing for so long. Did you ever look back and say either like, oh, that was, I really recognized myself there or, oh, I really don't recognize myself or, ooh, how could I have written that? Or that was just kind of, I'm embarrassed. Like that was a little bit like silly or just kind of Pollyannish or whatever it might've been. First of all, when I told my husband I was doing this, he said to me, does this mean you're going to be angry with me when you come across the parts where you were angry then? I said, well, I don't know. Fair question, right? Right. And then he walked in one day, I was ready to kill him. And he said, okay, I got my answer. Um, <laughs> so for me, I think what I found was that I got very emotional at times. I mean, I would actually sit and feel like I was right in that moment. I realized that some of the stuff I wrote, I, I, I didn't cringe, but I just said, geez, who cares how much I weighed and how many miles I ran? And, you know, I would write details that were so unimportant. Uh, so those kinds of things happened for me. But the real joy of it was seeing where I planted seeds and watching them grow or seeing the ebb and flow or seeing where I myself had changed in the way I was thinking. You know, so so this is a period of 48 years that I was reading about. And if you think about it, when I started out, I was 30, I was much older when I was reading this. And so the perspective was many, many years. To, so to see that change or growth. And what I realized is I am still the very same person I always was. My behaviors have changed. But I knew my purpose in life early on, and that never changed. And I wrote things about legacy years and years ago, well before I ever had any idea what even legacy really meant. And certainly well before I started developing a course and teaching about legacy. So to me, it was really, there were some big surprises. Just kind of in in wrapping up, it just, if you could distill some of the best practices for journaling, if somebody's interested in in trying this, you mentioned that, you know, sometimes you look back, it was like, oh, I I was so absorbed in these picayune details, you know, how many miles, how many pounds, et cetera. How should journaling, you know, obviously I'm sure there's no only one way, but ideally do you feel like people should be like, you know, chronicling what they ate for lunch and those kinds of things or really stepping back and trying to evaluate larger themes in their lives? And if so, is that a daily process or that's more of like every couple of weeks, every month, every year, whatever it might be, kind of taking that larger stock, you know, what what's sort of the best way to go about doing it? 
Well, I, I don't think there is necessarily one way, but I will give you some some thoughts. Um, I do want to say that there are lots of different ways to journal. So there are bullet journals where people make lists, and there are art journals, and there are all kinds of different ways to journal. So that's very personal. But what I do feel is there's cert there are only two rules that I have in journaling. And the first is to make sure you date every entry with the day, the date, and the year because it's really nice to be able to look back and see exactly when you wrote what you did. And I'm sure for you, going back to see who you were at 18 and what you were doing is, you know, you, you might not have exactly known how old you were. And the second is not to censor what you write. And I think that the, above all else, that is the most important thing. To be honest with yourself, to take this seriously in terms of I'm doing this to lead a better life to understand myself better, and to grow as a result. And so I say, listen, if someone is interested in, in um, writing down what they ate and what they did and whatever, that's great. And if someone is interested in writing how they feel and what they're thinking, that's also really important. So I think it depends on the individual. But to me, the real gift is when you can write down what you're feeling and thinking because going back to that is really wonderful to be able to see what our minds were, where our minds were at at a certain point in our life. And always, you know, when when someone doesn't know what to write, just start with the moment. Just start right now. Well, where can people uh, read some of this work and, and you know, what, how many volumes are out? Are there future volumes planned? Where kind of give us a, an overview of the... Uh, of the, of the work uh, that you've produ produced or will produce? I did write a book um, when I first retired from the Holocaust Center. It's a, a book on the Hollywood Beach Hotel, which has a very interesting history. And that was a fiction, something that I have no idea how I wrote it or why, but it was something that I'd been wanting to write for 25 years. And then I have the two two volumes, uh, Living and Leaving My Legacy, Volumes 1 and 2. They are available wherever one buys books, Amazon and any bookstores. And um, all of that is on my website, including information about journaling and about legacy and about legacy journaling. Um, and my website is Merle R. Saferstein, so it's M-E-R-L-E-R-S-A-F-E-R-S-T-E-I-N.com. And we'll link to all that in the show notes. So we'll have all that available for people to scroll down and, and click through there and maybe experiment a little bit with, with journaling. It seems like an incredibly powerful tool for self-reflection, you know, and, and personal growth, honestly. Uh, it could be a spiritual exercise, like, uh, in, in, you know, as, as one may choose to construe it. Um, and it really seems, seems like a, a beautifully cathartic and powerful tool that I hope people will uh, avail themselves of and uh, one day maybe uh, leave a legacy as well. For others, um, Merle Saverstein, journaler, Holocaust educator. Thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.